Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, hello, this is Janet Morano, the Executive Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to our program. Well, you know, today's uh, program topic is uh, difficult for some people to think about or deal with, but it's a very important topic, for especially those of us who are in the pro-life movement who are trying to bring an end to abortion, because there is a direct connection between sex trafficking and abortion. Do you realize between 15,000 to 15, uh, 15 to 50,000 women and children are victims of sex trafficking and, and the, the sex industry basically here in the United States alone. And of course, what happens to these women and children that are being sex trafficked? Well, if they get pregnant, what do you think the, uh, the abusers do? They bring them to the abortion clinic. And of course we know the abortion industry is so terrible that they ask no questions. These are victims and they're not asking them questions. And in many times they're minor teenage girls who are being victimized. They're supposed to report sexual activity of a minor and do they? Absolutely not. Well, joining me today are two women who this is their wheelhouse. They have been working tirelessly to raise awareness and to hopefully one day bring an end to sex trafficking. So with us today are Laura Edera. She's an attorney and a pioneer in the effort to stop human trafficking. She's the president of Global Centurion, an anti-trafficking non-governmental organization at the United Nations. And joining her is Teresa Flores, who's a licensed social worker and a survivor of sex trafficking. Ladies, welcome to the program. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Glad to have you both. All right. So, Teresa, let's just start with you, because as I mentioned, um, you're a victim of sex trafficking. Tell tell everyone, because I think people don't understand. How does someone get, I mean, you know, sex trafficked? I think very often they're thinking now of all the immigrants coming illegally over the border, which, yes, they're being sex trafficked. But that doesn't mean they're the only people who are being sex trafficked. I mean, uh you're such a beautiful woman that you don't look like the average person who was sex trafficked. So tell us a little bit of, of your background and how did it happen to you? Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud to say that I'm a survivor now. Um, most don't survive or get out of this. Um, and that's why it's important um, to talk about it because it is, like you said, the numbers are huge and where those numbers are even smaller than what we feel that it really is. We don't even know. Um, when I go and, and share my story with, with audiences, at least one woman will come up to me and say, wow, my story is so familiar to yours. I didn't know. And that's how I found out, too, at 40, that what I experienced was called human trafficking. I, I didn't know that word associated to somebody that looks like me. Um, so I grew up in a two-parent family. Uh, we went to church every Sunday. 
and I have three younger brothers and um, we moved around a lot because of my dad's executive job. And so that's what made me vulnerable uh, is because I didn't have a strong support system. Even though we came from money, um, I, I didn't have grandparents and aunts and uncles and people that lived close that would notice something different going on with me. Um, and I would say that I was starved for attention like most 15 year old girls. Um, we moved to a, a new area outside of Detroit when I was in ninth grade. Uh, and it really just starts off very simply where I met a boy. Um, I think that I had been targeted by this group. Um, it was a, basically an underground um, crime ring that was running um, outside of Detroit. Um, he went to school with me. He was older and had two older cousins in my school as well that were all a part of this group. Uh, and took about six months of him, uh, we call it grooming, uh, where he was being very kind and nice and uh, showered me with attention uh, and then asked me if I wanted a ride home from school one day. It was that simple where, you know, here I am enamored with him. Uh, I'm not allowed to date. My parents are very strict. Um, and I thought a ride home from school was safe because I knew him. Uh, and unfortunately, that wasn't the case because he didn't take me home. Uh, he took me to his house. Uh, convinced me to come inside, uh, drugged me, and then raped me. And um, what what led from that was that I didn't tell my parents because I was ashamed um, of that that happening. I thought they'd be angry. Uh, and so, um, and there was no such thing as date rape back then in education and calling the police and stuff, really. So um, a few days later, he came up to me at school and said, uh, we have photos of this, uh, and they looked very different than what actually happened. And they essentially blackmailed me um, to do whatever they said, whenever they said. Um, so I would have to earn back these photos. They threatened me that I would have to, um, that if I didn't do what they said, they would show my dad's boss at work. They would put them around school. They would show them to the priest at church. Um, so uh, lots of threats um, following me, knowing where my brothers were at all times. Uh, and then I actually lived at home during this time, uh, which is always what surprises people is that I got to live at home, um, but they would call, they knew where I was, they went to school with me, they would come into where I was working. So um, it didn't matter that I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't taken, I wasn't kidnapped, um, but it, they still were able to control me that way. So for two years, um, I was forced to sneak out at night and forced, and I was being taken out of school. Um, to do whatever they wanted um, for men. And they made the money off of this. And it was a, a really horrific way to live. And nobody had any idea that was going on. So so this was going on probably through a good part of your high school yep. years. Yep. Uh, and like you said, your parents didn't realize it. They had this control on you, fear, mm -hmm. so to speak. Right. And then what helped you um, to, to kind of say, because so many people don't escape human trafficking. In your case, something must have happened to say, okay, this has got to stop. What was that that helped you, um, you know, say, that's it, I'm getting out? Yeah, um, I, it wasn't something that I did on purpose. 
Um, I was kidnapped one night by this group um, and left for dead in a, a motel in Detroit. Um, the police found me and took me home. Um, so things certainly changed after that because they knew the police were watching. Um, but really, it was a miracle um, that I got out because my dad got transferred again. Uh, and he wasn't supposed to be moved like this was supposed to be where we were ending up. Um, but he got an offer uh, a thousand miles away from Detroit and we ended up moving to Connecticut uh, and I didn't tell a soul that we were leaving. So I escaped, um, but really it was just a, a, a miracle that I was able to escape. And then during that time, did you become pregnant at all? No, um, another miracle that happened because, you know, wow. somebody asked one time, like how many men were there? And it's like something that really should, you should never ask a survivor. Um, because it's impossible to know and it hurts so bad to try and think of how many. Um, right. But you can imagine, you know, hundreds, thousands, right? So, um, and I was 15 when it started. So it really, really, truly was a miracle that um, I didn't get pregnant. Um, most, obviously, from our research, you'll see um, most do get pregnant from this. That's right. Okay, so now, Laura, you're the one who has uh, this wonderful ministry. And you got involved, you're actually involved, obviously, at the UN. So tell us about your background a little bit. And how did you and Teresa kind of meet and get connected? And now you're doing this work together. So Laura, let's let's hear from you now. Well, um, I've been doing this work for so many years, I'm not sure where to start. Um, I would say this called me, I didn't uh, look for it. Um, and it was many years ago when I was um, actually, uh, uh, you know, first begin right out of college and, and first looking at, I had started law school and I was looking at the laws that address um, human trafficking. And in, in those days, so that was the, uh, that was the mid nineties, um, uh, there wasn't much on the books specifically on trafficking. So I was gathering um, for a colleague actually, who was going to present it at the UN, all the laws worldwide that address the old slavery laws, debt bondage, involuntary servitude, um, peonage laws, and then that whole body of law on commercial sexual exploitation of women and children. So prostitution, pimping, pandering, procuring, maintaining a brothel, soliciting, all of those laws, every country has something. Um, most did not have much at that time. Um, and um, I was creating a database uh, uh, of those laws and doing a comparative analysis of those laws. And um, and again, kind of, it, 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 I, th I think these things are providential in some ways, but um, uh, I present, I was presenting the, th the first part of that work, which had never been done before um, in a small conference and there, two State Department officials were in the audience and they came up to me afterwards and said, uh, we've been trying to do this uh, unsuccessfully in house for uh, several years. If you were in our shoes, what would you do? And we ended up talking about it and they ended up asking me to write them a short letter about it. And then I was called to Washington, D.C. I was right out of law school. And um, they said, we want to set you up to finish what you started. So I was about 70 countries into it by that time, um, you know, at a 
at a university and, and they moved me. They moved me to Harvard and uh, into the John F. Kennedy School of Government. And I spent the next two and a half, three years, uh, you know, working on gathering all these laws worldwide. And right about that time, which was 1998, 99, um, Representative Chris Smith was thinking about whether our laws were sufficient to address human trafficking. And, uh, um, uh, somebody knew of my work and put me together with him and he had drafted a very first, it was a two page little um, statute uh, bill that he wanted to pass and we began to collaborate. And the result of that work after two years was the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000, which, um, which uh, uh, you know, was the, the, the model law worldwide, actually, that was the whole of government approach to ending human trafficking. So that's how I got into this. All right. So let's just talk about that law for a minute. What does that law say per se, you know, and is, is that law still applied today or has there been a subsequent more powerful law? But give us, give us that little piece. So that law does still apply today and many, many countries have, have copied it. In fact, the UN's protocol is based on it also. And um, it set up a three P framework. So prevention, prosecution, protection and assistance. And Teresa uh, can talk a little bit about, you know, what, what, the, what the meaning of that. And then it also defined for the first time modern day slavery or human trafficking. And it said that there were three parts to it. There's the, the um, actions, um, we call them suspect activities uh, in, in the law, recruiting, transporting, harboring, uh, uh, buying, selling, obtaining, um, you know, um, uh, of, a, of a person. And then the means by which it's done by force, fraud or coercion. And then the the for the purpose for commercial sex or for forced labor, and that uh, law, you know, generally speaking, that definition is what's used. You know, it's 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 this country's definition, but most countries have a definition that's similar, with give or take um, uh, a little bit. So those that that's the great thing that that did. It, that that did a number of other things too. It um, it. Um, uh, with that whole suspect activities, you know, people used to say when we were trying to pass the law, why do we need another law? We don't want another law. We've got kidnapping laws. We've got rape laws. Well, this reaches that whole pipeline of activity um, from recruiting, transporting, harboring, the buying and the selling, everything that we wanted that whole criminal network that Teresa was talking about to be included in the in the law. And then um, uh, it also set up a president's interagency task force on trafficking. And that um, created a political will in this country at the very top levels, because that's a cabinet level task force. Um, and, uh, and so we had what no other country had at that point, which was the political will from the top down saying, we want to address this and we're gonna make sure that uh, that uh, you know um, that that we are in the forefront of eradicating this criminal activity and human rights abuse. Well, okay, so now <clears throat> we have the law, <laughs> but we know darn well this is still going on. In fact, you know I travel a lot, and when you're in the Atlanta airport, they actually have an announcement that you hear multiple times if you're in the airport long enough about if if you observe or see uh, anything that might be suspect of, of trafficking, sex trafficking, human trafficking, please uh, seek, seek someone here in the airport to let us know. So 
what's the, I mean, I guess I, either one of you, what's the state of affairs right now? Cause I think you both were, did a, a study too. So where are we now on all this? Teresa, I'll, I'll, I'll start and you can chime in. Um, so I, I think uh, you, uh, you are, um, you, you have the, you've asked the right question. Um, uh, so, what is the nature and scope of the problem in the U.S. and worldwide? And the answer is we don't know exactly. We've got a couple of groups that are doing um, uh, work worldwide, um, and um, the U.S. has decided to adopt those NGOs, which is um, Walk Free and also an, an intergovernmental organization, the um, ILO. Um, International Labor Organization, their studies on worldwide trafficking. And so the, that study says, and they do it every two years, that there are 49.8 million people trapped in some form of, of slavery uh, today. Now, the, the U.S. is another thing. Um, we have no uh, number, no statistic um, nationwide that tells us what the nature and scope of the problem is in this in this country. I'm working on this right now because I'm doing a kind of comparative analysis of, of what states are coming up with. And um, I, I think that's going to be the wave of the future is to do prevalent studies in states. Because for instance, Texas came out with a study about three, four years ago, and it said in its state alone, 300,000 were trafficked. And that 79,000 of those were, were children. And so you see, when you ask a state to look at itself and to, to find what the, you know, what the prevalence is of trafficking, you get a much better idea of what's happening in, in, in the world. But um, that, that nationwide study is, is yet to come. Okay. And then Teresa, what do you have to say? Um, you know, so many survivors don't know, like, like I didn't know that what happened to me was called um, human trafficking. A, a lot might have been forced into prostitution for various reasons growing up um, and as a, a young adult. And so they think, well, they were just, they did this by choice. They, um, their boyfriend made them do it. And so, but they don't understand that that's really human trafficking. Um, in our country, we confuse those words a lot where people think, oh, well, she was a prostitute. So she did this by choice. Nobody does this by choice. Um, they are actually victims of human trafficking. Uh, we know that 40 to 45% of, of the victims that have been trafficked in the U.S. are actually trafficked by their family members. Um, and so this is um, a huge issue that we, like Laura said, we have yet to even be able to uncover the sheer number of, of really what this looks like in the United States. But if you think of Texas, 79,000 kids that are being trafficked, you know, multiply that by, you know, every state, that's a quite a big problem here. I mean, this is the second leading crime in the United States. So if you just said family members. I mean, yeah. I can't wrap my head around that. <laughs> like, <clears throat> how does a family member take a younger girl member of their family? Now, you're talking about a media family or it could be an uncle trafficking a niece or, I uh, mean, this is really what's happening? Yeah, 40 to 45% of victims are trafficked by family members. So it could be extended family or immediate family. Um, I know of a, a young woman, she's in her 40s now. She was 13. She was molested by her father. 
uh, we have a large percentage that are actually started off with incest and molestation that then go into traffic being trafficked. Um, she was trafficked by her father and, um, and actually did get pregnant and he took her to the abortion clinic and um, stood by her side the entire time. And yet nobody asked those really important questions like, where's your mom? Why are you 13? And, you know, those things like that would have been the perfect opportunity for somebody to intervene in her life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, the abortion industry, um, they don't report. And we know that uh, by testimonies I have with the women from Silent No More, they were teenagers, you know, when they got pregnant and were taken by, like you just said, uh, a relative or a boyfriend or someone to the mm -hmm. abortion clinic. Well, that's sexual activity of a minor. They're supposed to report that. And obviously they're not reporting. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And so if people are, are listening to this right now and they must be saying, well, well, you know, no one that I know is sex trafficked and what could I do about it? And like that announcement I hear in the, why in the Atlanta airport. I haven't heard it in any other airport, but Atlanta. So that's my first question. Either one of you can take it. But then the, the next question is, what can people do? You know, this whole phrase about if you see something, say something, but what are they looking for? What are people looking for to say, uh-oh, this doesn't look right. So go ahead, Teresa, you go first and then we'll go back to, to Laura. Yeah, um, I travel a lot too, and I've heard that I've you know heard the recording a lot. Other airports have signs in the bathroom. Um, they have signs at the luggage claim, um, and I think they're great for raising awareness. Um, but you're right; people don't know what the signs are. They don't know who do I call, what do I do if I see something unusual, and I'm, is this like just my imagination or? you know, may, somebody else will do something. And so unfortunately that happens all the time because people aren't educated enough in this country on what the signs are. Um, if they knew it's, it's, and it is hard to see, you know, um, you say a younger girl inappropriately dressed in the airport with an older guy and she's kind of being dragged along. She doesn't look happy. That could be, you know, a teenage kid with their family. So it, I know it's hard to tell, um, but it's a gut instinct that you get. Um, and that gut stinks always right. So, and, and if you were to call the number and say, hey, look, I see something, I'm not sure, but it doesn't sit right with me. Who cares if you're wrong? Like if you're right, you just saved somebody. So um, it, it's great awareness, um, but it is a difficult thing to, to break through. It's almost like we need to have a big campaign on this, like we did with domestic violence, like we do with cancer. We need to have a huge campaign and put money into it so that everybody gets educated on it. All right. So, you know, just like basic, um, I mean, I think <clears throat> like whether it's sex trafficking or for work, right? <clears throat> Your neighbor, you suddenly see a young girl that's hanging around in their house, right? And helping around the house. W wouldn't that be a, a sign that, oh, maybe she's being uh, trafficked for labor, maybe not sex, but for labor, right? Like, in other words, should we look for <clears throat> suddenly someone who seems to become part of someone's family that's not related, doesn't even look like the family, but they're suddenly there with the family? I would look for signs like, does she get to leave? <clears throat> Is she always there at home um, and you never see her in the car going anywhere? 
You know, she's sleeping, eating, living there, not leaving. Um, does she look like she's abused? Is she wearing the same clothes every day? Um, and, and even having a conversation with her saying, hey, you know, I see you're from another country. How often do you get to talk to your family at home? Um, how much do you make an hour? Are you being compensated? Um, so things like there's some key questions to definitely ask if you're in that situation, maybe even at a restaurant where you see the same young person over and over. Um, do, are they living there at the restaurant or the nail salon or the massage parlor? So there are a lot of signs that you can um, educate yourself on. Right. And then, Laura, is there a, kind of like I just asked Teresa, though, but is there a, a definite list of things? You know, we have a law and you, you both have researched this. But if someone were to say, like, OK, what are the signs? What are the things? And then what should I do? You know, so what can you say, Laura, about how do I really know that I'm seeing uh, sex trafficking here? Or well, for later. I, I'll, I'll go to this, the study that Teresa and I just completed, um, because, you know, for a long time, we thought this was a criminal justice issue and a human rights issue. And we're finding that it's a public health issue, too, a public and a private health issue, and that trafficking victims have a lot of health issue, health problems. And what led us to this study was finding out that 71% had said that they were pregnant at least once during the time they were trafficked. And 22% uh, said they were pregnant five times times or more. And um, uh, so, you know, 55% uh, said they had at least one abortion, 29%, 29.9, it was 30% said they had multiple abortions during the time they were trafficked. And so we wanted to look into what are some of the signs and indicators in the health field. Um, and uh, so this pilot study that we just finished, um, uh, we among 31 of the survivor respondents, um, 119 pregnancies were reported just among those 30 um, uh, respondents. And miscarriage and abortion were really common uh, pregnancy outcomes with 35% of, of all of the pregnancies ending in abortion. And 37% of the survivors saying that they um, they got some prenatal health care, but lots of them saying they didn't get any prenatal health care if they decided to carry the baby to term. And among the survivors that uh, that uh, had abortions, 82% said that they regretted their abortions. And so the focus that I uh, would like people to, to, to have right now is on figuring out how can we reach those who might be trapped in trafficking and, 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 and at least let them know that there are a lot of alternatives out there um, because most of them were not aware of the alternatives. 22%, only 22% were aware of pregnancy resource centers. Only 19% were aware of adoption alternatives and only 3% um, were aware of the safe havens where you could have a baby and drop it off at a police station or a fire uh, station or a hospital. And so getting the word out just generally about these um, amazing alternatives, um, I think is important because when somebody's trapped in trafficking, you may not be able to reach them um, uh, specifically and ask them questions. But we can advertise what kinds of help are out there and available. And um, many survivors have said to me when, they, when we're doing our focus groups, once I knew I was pregnant, 
I knew I, had, I wanted to have the baby. I knew I had to get out. There was an additional impetus because of that additional life and uh, to, to try to do something, to try to reach out, to try to find an exit, find an escape, get a rescue. And so um, I, I think our work is in making sure that the, everything that we have available, survivors know about out in the world so that when they are, um, you know, in this situation, they can utilize all the services that are available. That was a long answer to your question. But. No, that's okay. <clears throat> well, you know, recently here in uh, Merritt Island, where I live, I, I went to visit our local uh, pregnancy center there. And besides all the work at the pregnancy center, this was the most, I mean, I've been to pregnancy centers all over the country. And in this pregnancy center, in addition, they have a separate entrance here. And it turns out it's, it's a beautiful setting. They have a shower in the back mm -hmm. and women, <clears throat> girls, whatever, you know, know they can come there that are homeless and they can come in and it's a safe space. They can get something to eat, take a shower, and they'll even have clothes that they can have, and they can do clothes, laundry, and, and leave. And within this atmosphere, in the back office, there's someone who works for the uh, the state here in Florida that's part of sex trafficking. And, and they said that what happens is these girls come in and they start talking to someone over that little cup of coffee that they're warming up or they're getting out of the heat and cooling off or whatever, and if, and if the, the pregnancy center worker gets a sense that something's not right, they'll say that, would you like to talk to someone? And they bring her back. And sure enough, they, they catch now uh, these girls and get them out of the sex trafficking situation. But that's the first time I've actually heard within a pregnancy center right. um, this raised awareness of, of kind of welcoming them in, so to speak, you know, besides a yeah. free pregnancy test, but a shower and change of clothes. And then they are finding girls who are being sex trafficked. We have created a drop-in center, basically. Uh, um, and, and when we've surveyed um, uh, survivors about what their needs were, one of the first things they said, they say food, clothing, shelter. They say a place to take a shower. They say a place to get cleaned off, a place to rest, you know, um, and or sleep, you know, th those kinds of things. And so uh, that's brilliant. Um, that's a new addition that I'd never heard of. And I love that idea of some kind of little drop-in center attached to the pregnancy resource center so that um, it, it's kind of a natural symbiosis that could right. be created. Mm -hmm. Well, and they said this is what happens is the word gets out right. that mm -hmm. this is a safe space you can go to, you know? And if they suspect they're being trafficked, then the authoritative person that's in charge of that whole work knows just what to do to kind of rescue them and get them then a place to live temporarily and like go through all the next steps to get them out of the situation they're in. So I think it's an amazing model. So don't worry, I'm going to be spreading it far and wide. Right. But there's one more thought I had, <clears throat> you know, if they don't take them for an abortion, I'm wondering how many of them they continue the pregnancy, but then they take the baby from them. And then that could be illegal adoption stuff going on too, right? Selling babies, right? Right. Um, when Teresa and I did this study, this is a small pilot study and it's a precursor to a much larger national study that we're in, involved in right now, where we're going to go to 20 cities. We've, we've gone to a, about 
10 already, but we're going to 20 cities and, and we're asking the same set of questions. But in this pilot study, yes, there were 44 survivors um, uh, who had children born to them, I'm sorry, 44 children born to survivors while they were being trafficked. And 19 of the survivors said they were able to keep their children. Um, 10 said they uh, gave them to relatives and the others had them taken um, either by the trafficker or by um, Child Protective Services, because Child Protective Services now takes a look and says, well, you're not a fit mother, or, you know, oh my gosh, you have prostitution charges, or you have other criminal charges, and the child is taken away. And so that's another area where I think we need to uh, uh, take a good hard look at how our systems are actually um, uh, working against, they're not really serving the needs of, of survivors who oftentimes want to keep their children and need help figuring out how to, how to do that. Right. Amazing. One final thing, ladies, okay, <clears throat> the old phrase, if you see something, say something. Is there a nationwide hotline number that we can uh, publicize right now so that people's, if, you, if you're not sure and you saw something, what do you do? Where do you call? What can you say? Yeah, there is. It's uh, run by Polaris Project in Washington, D.C. Um, and the national hotline number is 1-888-3737-888. And um, a victim can call in um, to get help immediately. They uh, run, I think, 118 different languages 24-7. And um, people can call in tips. But I would suggest that if they have tips or questions that they maybe call their local authorities um, and ask um, and just let them know what's going on because there might be part of a larger investigation. Um, but the hotline number is perfect for people that are involved in it now and want to get out. If you could just slowly <clears throat> repeat that hotline number one more time. 1-888-3737-888. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you, ladies, for this informative uh, information. And I, I hope this program gets out far and wide and that we can get some girls and young children out of trafficking and save them. So thanks for all you doing and may God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. Well, brothers and sisters, there was a lot to learn here today, but please don't let this information sit here in just this program. You got that hotline number. You heard all this. This is a nationwide problem. Obviously, uh, like we were just uh, heard, it's a worldwide problem. But let's clean up our act here in the United States first. We have so many illegal immigrants coming in right now. They are being trafficked both for sex and for work. Let's keep our eyes peeled. And if you either call the hotline number or call the local police department, but let's stop these people that are preying on women and children. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you and God bless. For Catholic pro-life people throughout the world, Our Lady of Guadalupe is honored as the patroness of the unborn and of the pro-life movement. She experienced an unplanned pregnancy. She chose life. This October 2nd to 8th, you have an opportunity to go to the location where Our Lady appeared to St. Juan Diego. You'll be able to see the actual tilma of Juan Diego on which Our Lady left her miraculous image, and thanks to which the practice of human sacrifice was ended among the Aztecs and millions came to Christ. Priest for Life Executive Director Janet Morana and Pastoral Associate Father David Begany will be among the presenters, as will Deacon Harold Burke Seavers. 
The pilgrimage will take you to astonishingly beautiful churches and special places like Puebla. Aside from the spiritual refreshment and peace a trip like this brings amidst the insanity of this culture of death, the biggest benefit of joining this pilgrimage is that you'll be with like-minded people from morning to night. This will reinforce your already strong commitment to Christ and to the unborn and forge relationships that will last a lifetime. Sign up at ProLifePilgrimage.com. We hope you'll join us. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.